Hey, this is Jason Hansen. I'm the lead pastor at Anchor Church. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I hope that as you listen, you're encouraged in your walk with Jesus to live for him, to tell others about him. Thank you for joining us. I hope that you're encouraged. Open your Bibles to Esther, if you would. We're going to be in Esther chapter 8 today. Our series, like I said earlier, is a series about finding God in the book of Esther because he is never mentioned there. And the temptation, maybe, when we think about our lives, is that we don't see God at work either sometimes. We, you know, we, we don't have, I don't know about you, but I don't have moments where God, you know, lights my bed on fire and he starts talking to me from that or something like that. Like, I, I don't have that experience. Um, and so, so the, the, the question can be, is God at work? Is God moving? Is God doing something? And we want to find that the answer is absolutely he is. He's always at work. He's always doing something. And we want to see that through Esther today. As I was thinking about this uh, this text, Esther chapter 8, I was reminded um, of when I was in fourth grade, I had a, an English teacher who um, got me to hate English. You ever have teachers like that? They just got you to hate something. And this teacher got me to hate English because uh, she graded so harshly that it was almost impossible to do anything right. I, I just remember trying to write things and I would just get bad grades after bad grades. My parents were concerned because they thought, this, this teacher's ruining my son. <laughs> like, this teacher is destroying his joy in school. And I'm sure you've had teachers like that as well. Well, when I got into sixth grade, I kind of recovered. I got into sixth grade, and I had a teacher, an English teacher, who graded uh, papers. We have to do these papers in Michigan. Graded papers, and one of the things on the rubric was cover creativity. So it was creativity for the cover page of this thing. So I remember spending just so much time writing a paper, trying to get a creative cover, doing all this kind of stuff. And when I got the grade back, everything was good except the creativity. He gave me like a one out of five which dinged me down to a C. And my, I remember coming home, and my dad said, you need to get back in the car. We're going to, to your, talk to your teacher. I said, okay. You know, I'm like looking at my grade. I'm like, I got a C on this? Like, I'm all just discouraged, right? I remember going to, my cl- going to school, uh, sitting down with this teacher, and my dad said, now, why, why did this, you know, why did you ding him on this? Because he seems like he should have got an A based on everything else. But this one grade, he said, well, it's just not very creative. My dad said, well, can you, expl- can you explain that? So he grabs somebody else's, you know, he grabs, a, he grabs mine, and he grabs somebody else's. And he says, well, see, this is creative. This is not creative. And I, I'll never forget it. My dad said, well, um, let's see, I think that the other one's not creative, and I think Jason's is creative. See, the problem is, is that you're actually grading this on your own, like, not objective opinion. You actually can't do a grade on um, creativity of a cover. Like, that doesn't make any sense. You can't do that. And then I remember thinking, I might actually get a good grade. Like, that is a really good argument. I remember thinking, like, that, you perfect argument. I'm in, sixth, I'm in sixth grade. I don't know logic. Like, I don't know any of these things. And, and so I remember him saying, Jason, why don't you just wait outside? So I said, okay. So I went outside, and I'm thinking, oh, this might work. We're coming back in. Got a good grade on the paper. I thought, my dad fought for me. My dad fought for me. He fought for my grade. Now, now the reason that it worked is because he's a parent, right? And if I had said, hey, why don't you give me a better grade? Not going to work. If my teacher, if my uh, classmate came and said, I think Jason's is creative. Not going to work. The reason it worked is because my dad went in and said, that's unacceptable. And I want you to change the grade. And he changed the grade. 
See, we all need advocates sometimes, don't we? We all need people that fight for us in moments. And we all need somebody advocating for us at times. There's just times in our lives where we need somebody else to step in and say, hey, wait a second, there's something needs to change here. And I think oftentimes we find that when we're in the midst of turmoil and hardship and difficulty. Isn't that right? Experience difficult times in your life where you feel like, man, I just, I need someone to help me here. I got to have somebody walk this out for me. Sometimes we can't fight for ourselves. Sometimes we're so in hopeless situations, turmoil, something's going on. We need somebody else to come in and fight for us. And here's what I want you to know today. As we think about Esther chapter 8, here's the big idea. It's this. In turmoil, and we think about struggle and trials and hardships because we're in Esther, they're in a bunch of turmoil here, they're in trouble. The people of God are in trouble, in turmoil. The greater the advocate, the greater the hope. See, the greater your advocate in moments of turmoil, the greater your hope. The greater, uh, the greater uh, my advocate is, the greater my hope is. The reason that I thought my, I might get a better grade, because I recognized my dad isn't me. He's greater than me. He's a parent. He, he's somebody that, I, that is speaking on my behalf. We need that. Look, we need advocates even if we're not in turmoil, right? We need people to come speak for us in those. But in turmoil, when we're in trouble, when things are going wrong like they were for the people of God here in, in the book of Esther, when that is happening, the, we recognize the greater the advocate, the greater the person fighting for us, the greater the hope that we have and that we will have and that we can have in it. And I think we're going to see this here in Esther. We're going to answer this question this morning. is How do we prepare our own hearts for when turmoil hits so that we recognize there is hope here? How do we find hope in turmoil? How do we, how do we get there? How do we get to that spot? We want to answer that question this morning as we read and as we go through Esther chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Esther chapter 8. If you need a Bible... Uh, version. if you have a phone, you can just actually go to an app. It's called Version, and you can download it right now. It's free. We use the English Standard Version. You can read along with us if you'd like. I'm going to read this whole text. This is the only objective thing that you'll hear this morning. Nothing that I say is going to be any more objective than this. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Esther chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. Which, if you're just joining us, uh, Mordecai is uh, Esther's adopted dad. He, he, he adopted her. her. Her parents had died, and he, he adopted her. And so she finally lets the king, her, her husband, in on who Mordecai was uh, years later. She hadn't said anything. And now she comes and she says, this is who this man is. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman. So Haman had had it, and then he killed Haman for trying to kill Esther and the Jewish people. And he took it back and he gave it to Mordecai. Meaning that at this point, Mordecai is now in Haman's place. He is the second in command over pretty much the whole known world. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, 
if it please the king, if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So you can write a new one. I can't actually go back and revoke what was already written by Haman, but, but you are welcome to write a new one. And the king's scribes were summoned at this, that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and to the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in the script and in their language. This is actually almost exactly what was written back when Haman did it. This is how the, the writer here is almost using the exact same language, meaning that he's writing the exact, to the exact same people. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. That's the day that the Jewish people were going to be set for destruction. And so they were allowed now to defend themselves. And a copy of what was written was to be issued in a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode and hurriedly urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa, the capital. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, as we, as we enter into chapter 8, remember what Tyler said last week in chapter 7, God is the God of reversals. And he, and he reversed everything here, didn't he? If you take a look just right at the beginning, I mean, Haman's house, Haman's signet ring is no longer in Haman's possession, but is now belonging to Esther and Mordecai. Listen, Esther was afraid of King Ahasuerus, didn't want to come into the to the chamber to talk to him. Mordecai was at the 
the gates of the king's palace in sackcloth and ashes, poor, had nothing. And all of a sudden, just in a matter of days, he is now flipped. He is the master of Haman's house. He is now at the signet ring, second in command in Persia. And, and Esther, the queen, is glorified here as the queen. This is a, a reversal of fortune. This is something that, that they are now reversed here. Xerxes has fought for Esther and Mordecai. Xerxes the Great, the king of kings, Pharaoh of Egypt, the ruler of all the known world, 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, now fights for Esther and Mordecai, and he's done so. And, and she even is so comfortable now with him that she lets him know, hey, listen, yeah, I'm Jewish, but Mordecai, Mordecai is my, he's my dad. He's my dad. This is who he is. He's raised me. And, she, and he, he, now, he raises Mordecai up into this level of authority. Second greatest person in Persia. Here Mordecai is in a moment. Xerxes now is on her side. She recognizes, hey, he's, he's on my side. The king, the king's fighting for me. And so she figures, well, this is good, but I'm just going to go ask him for some more. Because one thing that he's like, he's fought for me, Haman's gone, he protected me. But there's a little bit more. You ever have a little bit more moments where you're like, yeah, someone's doing something for me? I, if you, to all the kids in here, right? You just got Halloween candy. You ever ask your parents, can I have a piece of Halloween candy? And they say yes. And what's one of the first things you want to do? How about two, right? Can I just get one more piece? You ever do that? Yeah? You ever do that? One more piece? Okay, and, and what I, my answer is typically, my kids are over here, my answer is typically, how about zero? And they are, okay, one's fine. Um, so, you, so you think about that. She just thinks, I'm going to ask for a little bit more. I want to make sure he understands. And I want you to notice something. She has a lot of confidence going in now, doesn't she? When she first went into King Xerxes, she spent three days fasting. Because she didn't know what was going to Remember, we were so nervous. How is he going to react? She doesn't do that anymore. She goes right in. Take a look at verse 3. Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan that Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. She doesn't even wait for the golden scepter to be, to be leveled down. She just starts talking. And he's got to go through the motions so he, you know, scepter's down. You're fine. All right, so he, he gives her, that's okay. I'll hear from you again. Here's what we want to do. But what I want you to notice is that now the queen of Persia and the second in command of Persia begin advocating and fighting for God's people. This is no longer a scared Jewish girl who's in a harem who doesn't want to come before the king because she's nervous and a guy in sackcloth and ashes outside of the city or outside of his palace. Now it's the queen who has been honored and it is Mordecai, second in command, who come and they fight for the Jewish people. Look at verse 6. Look at what Esther says. For She comes and she says, I need, I need you to help Save the people, like revoke the, the edict. And I want you to notice her language. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? She, she never even told him before that she was Jewish. And now she's like, they're my people. They're my people. I, I want you to, to fight for them, please. Get rid of this. How can I bear to see this happening? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? She's, she's fighting for them, and so does Mordecai, because the king lets us know, well, uh, 
I can't actually undo anything. But you're free to write a second law. There's one law. On this one day, the Jews can be killed. Look, write a second law. And he lets Mordecai do whatever he wants. This is exactly what happened with Haman, isn't it? That's why Ahasuerus, we've said this, Ahasuerus uh, in Hebrew means king headache. Because that's what's going on. He's just flippantly going, okay, you're in charge now. You're in charge now. I like you now. Don't like you. There's just, it's a headache for the Jewish people. It's a headache for Esther. But he says, Mordecai, fine. Okay, yeah, I I told Haman, kill all the Jewish people. Look, if you want to reverse that, whatever. Like, just reverse it. Just do it. And so Haman goes second in command and he writes this edict that says in the same day that people are going to kill the Jews, any Jewish person can defend themselves. You have the right to defend yourself. Like we can't undo the command. There's still work to be done, isn't there? But there's hope. Why? Because the people that are fighting for the people of God now are great. As a matter of fact, they're so great that they, they don't even see Mordecai's name on this. This new edict that goes out to every province and every language in the city of Susa, the capital, it is actually signed with the signet ring of the king of kings. Pharaoh of Egypt, Xerxes the Great. Look, he is the greatest person in the world. There isn't anybody greater. And he's signed once their death warrant and now a hope-giving document that allows them to defend themselves with nothing that's going to happen to them if they do so. He, this is this is all of a sudden gone from the horrible circumstance of certain death to hope. And why is that the case? You know why? Because in turmoil, the greater the advocate, the greater the hope. There's something here for them to see. There's something here for them to actually understand and to recognize. And I want you to notice, like the word hope's not in here, but did you notice the description of the Jewish people's response? How great is this response? Listen, they see Mordecai. I don't know if they see him, but he comes out. Mordecai is now, he is, a, he is in royal robes. He's got a crown on his head. I mean, this guy is decked out. And the people read what happened. And I just love this description in verse 16. The Jews who once were despondent, look, there was no hope. Church, they had zero hope, right? They were just lost. Death was sure for them. They couldn't defend themselves. All of a sudden, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. In verse 17, there was gladness and joy among the Jews. A feast and a holiday. Listen, remember, this. we said this at the very beginning, but Esther was written... So that the people of God, the Jewish people, and and us as we recall this, remembered why they celebrated the Feast of Purim. They celebrated it, you know, Purim, it was the casting of lots that Haman did. They celebrate the, the, the Feast of Purim as a reminder that God rescued them from the certain hopelessness. And God did a work. And here it begins. They there's gladness and there is a feast and a holiday because there is hope given. And our series here is called Where is God? Because we, God's not mentioned. But there is a, a, look, we can look at this and say, hey, Xerxes in some places, that he's advocating for the people. I mean, Esther sure is, and so is Mordecai. He, he sure is as well. But there is a hidden actor, isn't there? There's a hidden actor, church. 
in this whole story, there is a hidden advocate, somebody that is fighting for God's people. And if we recognize who this hidden actor is, we'll remember that there is no greater actor. Like, like we think about, you know, in turmoil, the greater uh, the, the advocate, the greater the hope. Listen, church, we can't get any greater than the God who speaks worlds into existence. We can't get any greater than the God who holds molecules by the word of his power. We can't get any greater than the God who says, you are a sinner, sin, sin no more, and you are a sinner no longer in my eyes because you've trusted in my son, Jesus Christ, who saves you from certain death. Listen, there is gospel implications in Esther. We have to grasp them. Look, we could talk about all this. There's so many. We don't have time to get into all these gospel implications. But just think about a couple. Here's Xerxes. He's the king. Esther comes in, and she's advocating for the people. She comes and says, look, the people need to be saved. There's hopelessness here. And the king and the king grants her request. And all of a sudden, and Mordecai too. Mordecai's in sackcloth and ashes. And he says, she says, Here, here's who this man is. And this king Xerxes, king headache, comes and says, you're now raised uh, in glory. There's, there's, there's gospel implications to us as we think about this because the people of, of God here, hopeless, had no hope until an advocate shows up. And all of a sudden there's hope given here for them. And they're allowed now to fight for themselves. Here's the difference. Here's what's great about living in the post-resurrection world. A church world where we see Jesus dying and we see Jesus being raised from the dead. You know what's great about this? We get to look back and we get to say, look, God did not tell us when we are lost in our sinfulness, right? We have, look, there's, there's, there's things that we got to get here. The people of God were hopeless, certain death. You and I, before we knew who Jesus was, hopeless, certain death. Look, we, we did not have an advocate. We were lost. We were enslaved to our sin, the Bible tells us. We had no hope in this world, the Bible says to us. But, but we look at this and Jesus comes along as an advocate. Uh, 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 somebody, we're going to celebrate it at, at uh, Christmas time, who was born into this world to save us, to advocate and fight for us. You know the difference between what happened here uh, with God using the people in, in, in Esther and with us? What happened here in Esther was you're allowed to fight for yourselves. You know what the gospel tells us? You don't have to. Because God said, I'm going to do it. And, and Jesus comes, and he comes to take our sins and to nail them to a cross as our advocate, fighting for us. And he rises again from the dead, fighting for us. And he lives now, fighting for us. Listen, Christian, we live in a Christian existence, in a Christian life, in a tough world. This world is not easy. I mean, you're probably living, you're thinking about your past year maybe, and there's probably things you could point to and say, I, I didn't like that. That was, yeah, everybody's laughing. I didn't like, that was hard. And, and some of us share common hard experiences, and some of us have difficult, harder experiences than that. But listen, there is no greater advocate for you your hope should be immense. If there, is a, if there is an infinity amount of power in your advocate, there should be an infinity amount of hope in your soul.
And it's not just that, because God continues to fight for us, doesn't he? He continues to work in us and to grow us and to change us and to move in us and to take things. We've talked about this all through Esther. When we don't know why, God knows why, and that's enough. We, we, we trust in him because he's working. He's, he's changing us and molding us and making us into be more like him. He, he's working in us. He has not stopped working. Look, our greatest needs taken care of in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, maybe you're watching at home, maybe you're sitting in this room and you don't know the good news of Jesus, you don't have that hope in your heart because you're just trying to work in us. You're just tired of trying to live your life and work it out and just to be as good as you can possibly be and you recognize that you fall short all the time. Listen, there is an advocate who has fought a fight that you can get in on. It's, it's an advocate named, named Jesus and you, you see maybe, maybe you're not a church person, you see people wearing crosses. Look, that's a symbol of death in the old world. After Jesus got done with it, it's a symbol of life and hope and joy, and it can be yours. It can be yours if you just trust him. Come talk to me afterwards if that's you. Send me an email, jason at anchorchurchgilbert.com. If you're at home, I'd love to talk with you about it. I want to talk to you about the gospel. We, we need to make sure that we're grasping this. And church... I just want you to notice, these, these people, they, they had hope, didn't they? I mean, it's a moment. That there is no hope, and all of a sudden, there's an edict that goes out. They recognize, hey, listen, the queen, the king, Mordecai, wow, all of a sudden, light and gladness and joy and honor. A feast and a holiday. How much more feasting should we have? How much more hope and gladness and light should we have church? We want to make sure we get, we get this in Esther. We want to make sure we grasp it. Because, man, we have so much hope in the person of Jesus Christ. We want to make sure that we get this. The question for us is, if you think about in turmoil, in trouble, the greater the advocate, the greater the hope. As we think about that is, how do we apply this? How do we make sure that when we come into moments of turmoil and trouble, that we're prepared to walk through it with hope? Because we remember we have an advocate the greatest of all advocates. How do we remember that? There's, there's two things, two things, very practical. Sometimes, sometimes I like to go uh, in our applications and say, these are things we need to remember. Today I'm going to go hyper-practical and say two things to do, all right, to prepare ourselves for it. The first is this. Pray like your advocate is listening. Listen, there is a, there is a um, as we think about this, there's a reality to us that we can be really self-sufficient. We can think, oh, I can just make my way through this. And what that does is it practically leads us to a point of forgetting that we have one who has fought for us and one who is. Look, the people of God here, they could not save themselves. They could not get themselves out of the situation. They didn't know that there was somebody fighting for them. If they did, I think they would have tried to do as much as they could to ask. Look, we know who our advocate is, Right? We want to make sure that we, we, we pray like he is listening. We talk with him like he is listening. Prayer is simply talking to God. He invites us to do that. And so we do that similar to, you know, in some ways, I don't want to make a one-to-one -one here, but similar to Esther at one point was, uh, she was nervous. All of a sudden she sees, hey, look, God's at work. He's working at me. I'm not scared to go before the king. Why would I be scared to do that? He's already saved me here. Like he's, he's, I, he's not going to kill me. In a very similar way, church, we should be confidently going before the king. The real king of kings. Not the king of Persia, the real one. 
We, we should be going before him with confidence. And look, this can look like anything. We've talked about this in this series, but it can look like lament. Asking a lot of why questions. I said this before, you know, asking why is a sign of faith, not unbelief. You, you can go to him and you can, but recognize he's listening though. Don't just be like, I'm just praying because I'm supposed to. No, you're not supposed to. You can. Look, prayer isn't I'm supposed to. Prayer is I get to. I get to come before my advocate because he's listening, the one who fights for me. He's listening. We come before him just grieving sometimes. We don't know what life is. We we ask a lot of why questions. We also recognize, man, there is a lot to ask for because our life is filled with trouble. and, And there's people, there's, I mean, just look around. We got people sick. We got people, um, you know, they can't get out of their, I mean, just COVID world. We got a lot of stuff going on, right? And that's kind of counting your own life. Do you come to him as if he's listening when you're crying out for help? Do you? I pray you do. But let me just say, do. All right? Pray like your advocate is listening. Look, we pray because we believe God answers prayers. And believes God can. We believe God can answer prayers. And so we, we pray. We come before him in prayer. And, and the second thing that I want to say is that we want to pray like you, our advocate has one hope for us. And what I mean by that is with thanksgiving. We want to pray with thanksgiving. If we want to make sure that we're prepared to remember who God is and that he's fighting for us and we have hope in moments, look, hope can come and go, especially if you, if you deal with depression, if you, deal with, if you struggle with different things like that. It can come and go in our minds, but our minds aren't always telling us the truth. The Bible tells us the truth. God is never changing. He is always fighting. Hope is con- constant and it's consistent. Do you pray with thanksgiving? Are you thanking him for his work for you? How often do you think, Jesus, instead of maybe, maybe this, do both of these, but instead of saying, Lord, forgive me of my sin, you ever think, Lord, thank you for forgiving me for my sins? Like we, we should be a thanksgiving people. We should be those that, like the, like the Jewish people here, light and gladness and joy, feast and a holiday. Thank him for who he is and what he's done for us. Jesus won you hope through his death and resurrection. Look, we are passionately one here. It's one of our values. I think we've hit all of our values this morning. Good. We're we're passionately one. It's one of our values. And we want to recognize that what God wants to do through us, he also wants to do in us first. And that means that that we we need to practice these things together. We need to bring people into this. Where are you lamenting? Where is that struggle? How are you thinking through it? Where are we thanking the Lord together? Let me give you one pitch for community groups because I think this is a way we can be passionately one and we can find prayer as a, an amazing source of strength. Over COVID, a community group was just a lifeline. Man, it was a lifeline. I just loved going every single Thursday, being with people, hearing how God was working in them, hearing what was happening, praying for them, having them pray for me. It was just so good. And we did that together. Let me just make a pitch for being passionately one because prayer happens individually but also in community. And we can remember, we can remind each other of these things. Hey, are you praying? Are you thanking God for things? Are you asking him? Are you lamenting? Where where are you at in this? Let me be really practical. All right? I'm going to be really practical. I'm going to call this the 30-day prayer challenge for you. Take out your phones. I know everybody's got a phone. Take out your phones. And I want you to set a reminder for some time every day, at least for the next 30 days, okay, just humor me on this, please do it, set a reminder to remind you to pray. 
All right, just for 30 days. I want to see how much hope we can build here. And if you're in a community group, remind each other on this as well. Okay, just, just set it. And I just want you to do this. At some point during the day, it could take you two minutes. At some point during the day for the next 30 days, pray two things. One, Lord, I know you're listening and you fight for me so. What? You answer that in your life. Lord, I know you're listening. I know you fight for me. So, what? That, that's up to you. That's the prompt, though. Second one is, Lord, thank you for what? It's up to you. I, I would recommend one of those thanks is the gospel. Because I think remembering that Jesus already fought for us reminds us that he will. So we want to make sure that we get those two things. Those two things, leave them up on the screen here for a second so people can write them down. I, I just want to take a 30-day challenge as a church just these two things to remind us that we have an advocate who fights for us and we can come before him and we can ask him things and we can pray to him for things and we can bring other people into that and we can pray with thanksgiving for what he's done. Church, in turmoil, the greater my advocate, the greater my hope, the greater your advocate, the greater your hope. What if we were a church what if we were a church? And the band, I'm going to ask you to come up. What if we were a church who constantly remembered that we have a God who is not distant, who is not separate, who doesn't care about us and what we do, what we have done, who doesn't just leave us to our own devices. What if we were a God who constantly remembered individually and reminded each other and talked to the world about the fact that we have a God who is intimately involved in details to fight for us and to work in us and to grow us and who has saved us. What if we were a God who went out there in Thanksgiving talking to every single person about the joy and gladness and goodness and feasting and holiday of the God who saves I wonder, if, I wonder if more people, now, the, the people here, uh, we read that many of the people of the country declared themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Ugh, we're with you. Like, don't kill us. We're, we're fine. But church, one of the ways the churches grow is that people see gladness and light and goodness and joy and feasting and holiday and thanksgiving for God because he loves them and they want to get in on it. Look, as Christians, why are we so somber? Why are we so sullen all the time? And people just, people, if people look at us and they think, wow, they're serious people, I just wonder if we're doing it wrong. Like, I wonder if at some point we just should say, I want to be glad. Can we be glad people? Can we be joyful people? Feasting and holiday kind of people? I think we should. I think if we are a Thanksgiving kind of people, then the community around us will say, what do you got going on there? Something's, something's different. What is that? And we can say, let me tell you about the good news of advocacy. There is one who fights for you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.